Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. We all have stories to tell, and that's what this show is all about. When we tell our stories, we pass along wisdom. We give each other a roadmap, a way of seeing things in a whole new way. And what seemed impossible to achieve is now possible because we have role models who have shown us the way. And before you know it, we're empowered to say things like, if she can do it, I can do it. The woman you are about to meet was described by the Wall Street Journal as, quote, a true jazz singer in a time of wannabes. Her path from Hingham, Massachusetts to stages large and small in the United States and around the world has not been easy, but it has certainly been inspiring. She's also a musician, a songwriter, a passionate advocate for jazz music and the great American songbook. And most recently, she put on another musical hat and became the executive director of WICN, the NPR affiliate in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm very proud to be able to call her my friend and my colleague for over a decade. Please welcome Amanda Carr. Hi there. Wow. I'm, I, you're making me nervous. Just, <laughs> I didn't know I was all those things. You come from this beautiful little town south of Boston. It's called Hingham. Can you describe your hometown to people who might be listening somewhere around the world? I feel like I'm the prodigal daughter because when I grew up in Hingham, how do you know as a child that you're in this beautiful place? You just you have nothing to compare it to. I grew up in a seaside town that was very historic. So, of course, it's only maybe 15 miles from the Mayflower where it landed. So everything's Miles Standish this or has all of these references to the pilgrims. A lot of old, historical, beautiful homes. And, of course, it was considered or it still is considered metropolitan Boston, although it was really just beautiful and rural. And I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said it had one of the most beautiful main streets she had ever gone down. So it was just a a lovely little town to grow up in that I didn't realize until I have lived many other places. There was always singing going on in your house. Music, performing is in your blood. Tell me a little bit about your folks. I had a pretty eclectic little household where my dad had played in many of the great big bands well before I was born and a little bit after, of course, when I was younger. But my mother also was a big band singer who evolved into a nightclub singer. So in my teens, my mother was one of the, well, other moms were, I don't know, making apple pies and Hingham. My mother's out at the Sheridan six nights a week. And I'm, I don't know, I was kind of a latchkey kid or I would just go in and, and watch her perform. I had music around me in a professional way. As a kid, you don't really think think anything unusual about it. I just started emulating my mother when I was younger, thinking, oh, this is easy. And I learned how to play piano and I wrote down chords to songs that I love to sing. And I went up the street at 14 years old and got myself a gig at Lums, which was like kind of like a 99 restaurant. I started playing and singing gigs like it was not a big deal. And my stepfather at the time, who was also a musician, would drop me off with my keyboard and pick me up. So it just seemed like a... a, In your blood. Yeah, a natural thing to do. You know, you're, you're talking about your mom as a big band singer, as a jazz singer. 
not normal in a small picket fence town like Hingham. You told me, I remember one time since we've known each other forever that, you know, <laughs> she always had like all this glamorous makeup on and outfits and, you know, the rest of the moms are like got aprons on, you know? I know. And it's so funny because she wore a lot of different hats. It was just really unusual if I were at home at night with a friend and my mom would come home from work, you know, with the big false eyelashes and, you know, back then in the 70s with the glamour and the gowns and the eyeshadow. And it was just really funny. It's a good thing she was a singer. They might think something else. You got your start, like you said, 14 years old. You marked yourself down to the local (laughs) restaurant with your keyboard and you got yourself a gig. And that really continued, and you went into doing some work in Boston area nightclubs. Take me back to that time in your life where you were singing pop songs and rock songs in nightclubs. The time was a little bit different. It's kind of framed by the legal age was 18. There were so many venues that had live entertainment, five, six nights a week. Live music was really part of my generation. It wasn't such a big deal to be able to play a club at 15 or 16 or 17. We had the opportunity to actually go out and play. And one of my first jobs in a band, my, I remember my mother saying to the guitar player who was 10 years older than me, she can play in this band, but you have to be the one to pick her up and you have to be the one to bring her home. So I kind of got my start as a teenager playing in a, in a rock cover band. I continued on in a a rock-covered duo, and we would play all the big clubs in uh, Hyannis, like the Mill Hill Club and Puffer Bellies, and even starting music school, which I went for a couple of years to University of Lowell for classical performance. I just loved playing clubs. It was such a natural thing to do. (laughs) At one point early in your career, you made the leap from Boston to the West Coast. Tell me about that chapter in your life. At the time, I was a big fan of Thomas Dolby, and I went to see him perform here in town, and I had met my boyfriend at that concert. He was the bass player. He was in the industry and a very talented young bass player. He's on Michael Jackson's Dangerous album. He worked with some of the top names in the business. I moved out, out to the West Coast to be with him. It opened up opportunities for me to meet other musicians. and, sure. and uh, But I was really in the company of just amazing names. Eddie Van Halen, or I'd be over Thomas's house who married Kathleen Beller from the show Dynasty. So I was always in the middle of these amazing musicians, Glenn Fry or Lee Sklar. You know, we'd all have to draw straws to see who drove Eddie Van Halen home because he had too much to drink. And my girlfriend was Michael Jackson's personal assistant. It was a really fascinating time, a fascinating time where I always felt like I was on the side because like, who the heck am I? You know, I'm how do you even infuse yourself into that? I was part of that. It really made an impact on me musically. You know, my dad used to tell me the cream always rises. Talent will not be denied. When you spend time in the company of great musicians like that, I mean, you've mentioned Eddie Van Halen a couple of times, Michael Jackson, obviously. What did you learn about talent? I think what I learned is what talent can breed, the dedication and the focus and what you need to do to perform your talent without the crumbling pressure of outside forces. You know, that was going to be my next question. You know, landing a recording contract, singing songs and then up on the radio, touring is not just about talent. It's about persistence. It's about connections. And sometimes it's about a little sprinkle of serendipity. It is. What's the famous line? Luck is when opportunity meets talent. You're always on this journey. 
going back a little bit to my parents who were the jazz and American songbook, I had no interest whatsoever in driving my parents' station wagon or singing, singing their, their music. music. And it wasn't until I had my own personal evolution of growing musically that later on in my 30s saying, wow, this music is really cool. I wonder what I'd sound like recording this or this. these lyrics are really hip. Oh my gosh, what fun it is to sing in front of a big band. I'm glad my mom asked me to fill in for it. I adopted jazz. I don't even call myself a jazz singer. I just fell in love with the genre and added it to my bevy of musical interests. What happens to you, Amanda, when you sing? I think that I've learned to appreciate this more now in my life than at any other time in my life is that I feel holistically who I am, that this is my purpose, that I am in pure joy and bliss. And it doesn't matter if I'm singing in front of a half a million people or I'm at an assisted living facility with 10 people that are just loving what I'm doing or that I'm affecting them or that they're appreciating or feeling joy. I think that that's what I feel when I sing. My goal is to be able to find a way to sing and perform every single day. Can you tell me about the first time you ever heard yourself on the radio singing a song? It was on WATD down in Marshfield. My band, we made a cassette tape and they played a couple of the songs from our band and we had an interview. And I remember the excitement. It was so exciting because back then, I mean, my gosh, it's the radio. It's hard to describe to young people who like media is everywhere, but that was a big deal. It was like, it felt like you, you made, made it, it. <laughs> even though it was like the one brick and the endless never making it thing. But yeah, it was pretty exciting. You have also had the opportunity to tour around the world. Tell me what that's like. I'm going to guess it's a lot of hard work. It is when you don't have an agent and you're your own agent, you're your own tour guide, you're your own tour director, you're your own booking the gigs. And you're driving the bus. And all you're at driving the, same. the bus all at the same time. I don't have a famous name or I'm nobody's daughter or that you'd automatically just be infused into, oh, well, here's your agent and here's your, right. your, here's your career. My first tour was in Italy and I had recorded my first jazz record and a producer in Italy heard it and invited me over to headline at the Euro Jazz Festival. This was back in 97. I got over there and I brought a piano player with me, not even knowing what to expect. I had an interpreter over there and I get off the plane in Milan and I look up and I'm on a billboard and I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I don't even know what jazz is. I'm just singing songs and here I am, <laughs> like I'm on a billboard, you know, I don't know what to do. Since then, you know, I've been to Europe and toward Australia. Just try to make my way and, and you, you meet the most wonderful people. people. What I love to do is I don't want to just have a gig. I want to have relationships. Yes. So right now I'm planning in 2019 after a long stretch, it feels that I haven't done any touring or any traveling or any significant shows. I'm actually going back to visit some of the places that I've been around the world, including China, and visiting with the people that made my experiences so cherished. That to me is more important than just going and doing the gig. I want to see the people and the musicians again and enjoy the relationship. Singing with the Boston Pops was a bucket list item for me. And you are one of Keith Lockhart's favorite local singers. What is it like for you to sing with the Boston Pops, to be surrounded by 
that orchestra. Last New Year's Eve, I was the singer with the Boston Pops. And when I was on that stage, I realized, and I've sang with a lot of different orchestras and a lot of different ensembles around the world and some of the best in the world. There at such a top level, I really felt that I had to be on the top of my game. I had to focus every brain cell on being perfectly on key and in tune because they are so pristine and so perfect that any misstep as a vocalist would stand out. But usually I'm pretty comfortable being put in a lot of different situations. This was one where I was very much aware of how tremendously wonderful that orchestra is. The Artie Shaw Orchestra, Harry James Band, Glenn Miller Orchestra. I have to say, when I experienced this Boston Pops phenomenon, it felt like I was in a cocoon, like I was surrounded by such strength and perfection in terms of the musicianship that it was almost like a spiritual experience for me. It is. You can very easily become a junkie of that kind of uh, feel. We will starve just to be able to feel that again. It's our drug of choice because that is such an amazing, rare feeling that emanates and resonates through your entire being. Yeah. Five CDs to your credit, composing music for TV and film. You wrote a song following the Boston Marathon bombings called The Boston Anthem, and it features our dear friend, rock legend, Charlie Farron. Tell me about that project. So close to your heart. I think that in my entire life, I have never felt what it's like to be consumed by something that I just have to do. This song, the lyrics, I could hear it, I could feel it, and I had to write it. John Finn, who's the guitarist for the Boston Pops, and I wanted to do something to kind of update what Boston hears. Is it just Dirty Water that we're going to play? Is it just going to be Sweet Caroline? Is there something else that Boston can own? So we ventured to write something together. All of a sudden, I channeled it and I called him. I said, I just wrote something and I think it's it. When we got together, I said, I don't hear myself singing this. I hear Charlie Farron's voice. He's so Boston. He's Boston sports. He's Boston rock. He's He's rock, but he's also so melodic. He's amazing. So then it was off to visit Charlie, who knew me, kind of knew me, but didn't really know me. And I am over the top excited to play this song for him. And he literally was very afraid to get in a van with me. I was was so over the top excited. He heard it. He embraced it. He sang it. It really has been embraced by so many people. And it has its own organic journey. I mean, you can't shove anything down anybody's throats, but it has really been embraced. We opened up the Warrior Arena with the Bruins and the mayor and the governor, and we were on center ice with the big video screen. It's there for everybody to enjoy. It's a free download, and I just hope that people resonate with it. Charlie Farron. We'll spell it for you. F-A-R-R-E-N. Charlie Farron, Amanda Carr. The song is called The Boston Anthem. You definitely have to listen to that. So the art of songwriting. I want to tell you a story about James Taylor. I sat down with him one day and I asked him, how do you write a song? And he said, well, my wife Kim knows never to take little pieces of paper out of my pockets and throw them (laughs) away because I get little phrases. They come to my mind. I write them down on a piece of paper. I stick them in my pocket. End of the day, take the pieces of paper out. Sometimes I call my phone. I, you know, back in the day, you'd call your answering machine. You know, this is how he writes a song. How do you write a song? Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. 
These days, more and more people are working from home. When your computer breaks down, you lose business. This is Dave Elmasian, president of TechHelpBoston.com. Our tech experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer. Same day, next day, and weekends too. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted us since 2000. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. I'm inspired differently for every song. My best songwriting was on cue, where for a number of years I worked as a contractor for a production company. I would be given parameters. We need you to write a song about Motorola. We need you to write a children's safety song album. I love being given parameters. Sometimes that's easier. And then there's the inspiration where it comes emotionally and you have to go deep and find how do I want to convey this emotion? What words and what lyrics and what am I hearing in my head? So that's kind of a different approach. My songwriting is inspired differently at different times. And I find just like anything, if you're in a period of your life where your administrative brain takes over your creative brain, to be a creator, oftentimes your your situation has to lend itself to your creativity. Songwriting is, for me, it comes from different places and different approaches and different reasons. Big band music. The Great American Songbook. This music is very special to you. So you decided that you were going to create a nonprofit to preserve this music. And that was in 2009. Talk about that. We were hanging out doing the recording for my last of my five CDs or albums. It was a big band album. A lot of the guys that were on the album in the big band were us second generationers. Uh, we had parents that were big band musicians and then us second generation players. And, and then there were the actual players that my dad played with that I knew if I didn't do this album right now, I was not going to have them as part of it. We're all hanging around and the conversation rounded out to, isn't it amazing that this music and all these charts and arrangements are in closets right now? And at one time there was 4,500 big bands in the United States and everybody went out dancing. It was the fabric of our country and our, our social network was going out and dancing to big bands. And now these arrangers are dying in the art of arranging. This was handwritten art of how this music was presented. Where is the stuff? Schools don't want to store it. It's a matter of storing a lot of paper. Who's going to play this music? Who's going to want to play this music? It was the impetus to start a not-for-profit called the American Big Band Preservation Society, where we would preserve the actual arrangements of all these big band musicians, not so famous, famous, whoever, so that their legacy, but also so that it's there for us to preserve our, our culture. Our culture. A, a lot bigger than I, I anticipated, but it got written up in the Wall Street Journal right away. And wow. I, I just was not expecting, yeah. you know. And so you've got all this work. Is it like in a vault somewhere to keep the paper safe or what? Well, at this point, <laughs> because it's so much, I didn't realize what a not-for-profit took. I have actually passed the torch down to Dan Gable, who is the next generation, who is the CEO and president of the American Big Band Preservation Society. So if you go to AmericanBigBand.org, you will see all his work forwarding this uh, nonprofit. Jazz. What is it about this type of music that inspires you? Because I have to tell you that as a singer, I think that jazz is very tricky. Because you kind of have to let yourself go 
and yet you have to skate within the lines all at the same time. What is it about jazz that inspires you that you love doing it? When the Wall Street Journal called me a jazz singer, I remember saying to Nat Hentoff, I don't know anything about jazz. I'm just singing these songs. I have no idea what I'm doing or if it's called jazz or not jazz. I just like the songs. He says, but that's what jazz is. It's your self-expression interpreting these songs. Being introduced to this music by the quote-unquote old school musicians, they told me what not to do to be a good quote-unquote jazz or big band singer. Stick to the melody. Don't try to be too big for the melody. Have the patience to sing a ballad. Be aware and honor the space in between the notes. Don't scat because you think you have to be a vocal aerobicist. So I came into this music thinking what not to do more than I have to. And I think that jazz is such a big umbrella that I feel fortunate that I don't feel the pressure to have to be like anybody else in the jazz world. What it does is it forces you to really look into yourself and challenge yourself to be authentic. And like you said, to be courageous enough to express yourself. Your latest adventure, speaking of expressing yourself, executive director of WICN. <laughs> this is the it. NPR affiliate in Worcester. What has this job been like? And I have to say, I believe that every job has a purpose and a reason, and you must have realized early on, I can do this. The station is such a wonderful station. It's one of the few stations left in the country that have as much live, on-air, host-curated music for the listener. I mean, as you know, Candy, I mean, this industry, it's all gone to programming. Right. What it's taught me is to, to play to my strengths, just like if you're a musician. Through some harrowing months of pressure, mostly put on by myself, but also it's a daunting task, I have played to my strengths in that I've empowered everybody at the station to be the best that they can be because it's really not about the nuts and bolts. The station is the people. The station is everybody that dedicates themselves to make the WICN what it is. I empowered myself to allow myself to not have to be great and perfect at everything, but to understand where my strengths are and lead and guide mm -hmm. through those strengths so that I could be confident. Instead of being executive director and general manager and toilet paper changer and programmer, <laughs> I have learned to delegate and hire people that are good in those areas so that I can continue to have the energy and the passion to support this station and promote this station the way that I feel I can do it justice. We all have chapters in our lives, Amanda, and your life is still <laughs> unfolding is, in such magnificent ways. But do you believe that we all have chapters? Absolutely. And I think what makes a chapter a chapter is understanding that we have beginnings and endings. And I think where so many of us, I'm not going to say go wrong, but come to hurdles and roadblocks is that we hang on to things that are preventing us from being our best selves or allowing us to grow and reach our potential. We have to learn to let go of things or to shift or to change or to end before we can allow ourselves to unfold and have new beginnings. Now, that being said, it's scary. It takes a lot of courage. It takes being comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
Even as we have this interview, you know, so many recent challenges that I'm facing to do just that, to be able to open myself up to new opportunities and to let go of things that I really didn't even want to let go of, but I knew if I hung on to them or if I hang on to them, it will not allow me to be my best self. And these don't necessarily have to mean that we have to make big splashes or change the world in these big sweeping ways. But it's really about allowing yourself to discover what your purpose is and your passion is and build that accordingly. And that's my next chapter. As you look back on this career, on your body of work, you must be pretty proud. And I know I'm proud to be your friend and to have watched you do all this great work. But I know that you are far from done. What's next for you? What I really love to do is connect with people. My career has been built really on serving clients. It hasn't been like, I want to be this one thing and that's what I'm going to end up doing. I'm so many different things, which can be good and not so good because people don't know where to put you or what box to put you in. Is she a rock singer? Is she a jazz singer? Is she a floor wax? Is she a mouthwash? Is she, what is, what is she? I do a lot of private events. I have this thing called live performance DJ where I'm actually playing and singing and interacting with a crowd, but I'm also a DJ. So I'm, I'm live, but I'm working with backing tracks. So I'm doing weddings and functions and large scale corporate events. And I'm loving it. I was because just about to say, you must love it because your whole face is going, ah. I get to sing everything. It's yeah. almost like, here's your palette. It's almost like bringing your own record collection where if somebody says, oh, what's your favorite music? And you say, well, it's what mood am I in? Sometimes I'm in the mood for classical or folk, or sometimes I just want to rock out. Well, as a singer, I love to sing. And maybe it's growing up doing cover tunes. I love to wear so many different hats and I love to entertain people and make them feel good. So that to me, even though I still do concerts and sing with symphonies and do those kinds of public events... I love being hired to do private events because you get to reach more people and you get to connect. And for me, it's not about the spotlight. It's about the connection. So I just want to take my music where I am making more of those connections, wherever that takes me. If you could take 18 or 21-year-old Amanda by the hand and tell her something you wish you knew when you first got started, what would that be? Don't put your self-worth in other people's hands. This is such a huge lesson for so many of us. And you are such an inspiration, by the way, for me and all the things that you have dedicated yourself to. I have to say wholeheartedly that this is a lesson for so many of us at every age. There are people that struggle with their self-worth till the day they die. This is something that if I had the tools or the understanding when I was younger to put my self-worth first or to have the ability to do that, I think that's what I would tell myself. I would have made decisions differently. I wouldn't probably have experienced the disappointments. But that being said, whenever we do get to this place, it's the lessons that we take with us that make us who we are and allow us to really do what we do the best that we can do it. So I'm, I'm grateful for the journey, even though it's been a little bit different. You have had the opportunity to perform around the world, and yet there is no place like home. What makes you still come back to Boston? And to your beloved South Shore. I know. And, you know, as we have this conversation, I'm actually in the process of getting back to what feels like home. I didn't realize how important that is to be in a place where 
you just feel right. And I wish I had some data or scientific support for this statement, but I know that it feels right to have familiar places that I love, the air, being near the ocean, friends that now I can say they're lifelong friends, and that's so meaningful. To have your own personal history, it does speak to who we are, like the culmination of who we've become. It is part of who we are. And if we're fortunate enough to have the opportunity to live in a place that makes us feel that way, well, gosh darn it, I'm (laughs) I'm moving there. Put me there. Put me there. At this moment then, at this time in your life, what does success mean to you? Success means so many different things to so many different people. And the general perception, I guess if you looked up the word success, it really is pigeonholed to mean something that in a lot of ways it isn't. Success to me is being fulfilled at what my passion is. It's that fulfillment that to me defines success. I think we all, no matter who we are, whether we're musicians or whatever job we have or whatever focus we have in life, if we're fulfilled at what we love to do, we are successful and we have all the wealth we need. That's my aim. That's where I'm at spiritually right now and in a mindful way with my career. That is the message that you partly have instilled in me. You are such an inspiration for that. Thank you so much for being on the show and for inspiring everybody who hears it today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Candy. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about her. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?